And the church said, it is an incredible thing to listen to the church ascend into worship and to be reminded that as we gather on the Lord's Day, whether you're here with us live, perhaps you're joining us online, we gather together as one local body of believers with many other local bodies of believers worldwide who traditionally hold the first day of the week sacred as we do. But we also gather with thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of saints who are already with the Lord. This is especially real to me, as I shared with you last week. Just two days ago, I preached over the casket of my aunt, and I thought about her and her Sunday morning today and what it must mean to her. She held the record for Sunday school attendance in her church. Years of perfect Sunday school attendance. I texted my father, her brother this morning, and I said, Aunt Jo begins a new record this morning. And as good as her worldly one was, she'll never miss another Sunday school again. And when I think about God's Word, I think about the celebration of the goodness of God in it. And therefore, I hope and pray that as you have so beautifully worshipped through song, you will continue to worship through the hearing of the preaching of God's Word. That's what I'd like to do. I'd like to preach to you a message from the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy as I prefer, or perhaps you have an app on your device, I invite you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find it, I would like to draw your attention to chapter 1. And once you find chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, this morning I'm going to preach from verse 10 down through verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter 1 rather, verses 10 through 17. And I'd like to preach a message simply entitled, Truly Together. The name of this series is Saints Together. And just a few weeks ago, I introduced to you this journey we're going on. We're going to walk through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse. And right at the beginning, the salutation from Paul, he says these words in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, call to be saints together, thus our series, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and Hours. I reminded you last week what I shared with you two weeks ago, that the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his second missionary journey, began a church in the city of Corinth, which is located, the ruins of it are located in what is today southern Greece. It was a significant place in the Roman world, and it was an eclectic place. Lots of different cultures, beliefs, and religions all melded together. It was a city filled with sin. And so it was amazing for people to come to faith in Jesus and to turn and begin to walk in the newness and the righteousness that God had called them to walk. Paul, as is so often the case, left Corinth. And when he left to continue his ministry some things began to struggle. The church was not in a good place when Paul received a report. He actually wrote a letter that is not preserved in the canon of Scripture. We know this from other references. And then he hears they're not 
getting it right. So he writes the second letter that he wrote to the book of 1 Corinthians, not to be confused with 2 Corinthians. The second letter was preserved by the church fathers. It was seen as inspired. The Lord affirmed it in his testimony. And so the book of 1 Corinthians is a lot of things, but it is an effort to call the Corinthian church back to God's Will. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, did you choose this book and this journey because you feel as though we're not in God's will? Couldn't be anything further from the truth. We are not a perfect church. We don't have perfect church members, and I can assure you we don't have a perfect pastor. But we are a healthy church. We are a vibrant church. God's hand is on our church. We don't take that for granted. But we also will not refuse to bear testimony to the goodness of God. He has been good to us this morning because I did not have the welcome or the announcements. I spent the morning in the children's hall thanking those folks who were watching your little bad kids. You left back there. And the children just kept coming and coming and coming. By the end of my 10 or 15 minutes back there, I couldn't get backstage fast enough. It scared me to death. I went and took another shower in disinfectant, and here I am standing before you. But in all honesty, as I saw many of you and I saw your children coming in, I couldn't help but think of the goodness of God to our church and how much of a blessing it is to see so many young people and so many families and so many new folks who are seeking the Lord for the first time or for the first time in a long time. So I did not choose this book out of a reaction to what I see in and of our church. I chose this book for two reasons. One, it's in the Bible, and we preach the whole counsel of God's Word. But two, a church should never wait until it's unhealthy to address its health. Every physician that I've ever talked to would tell you that if we focused on our wellness more, we would get to focus on our sickness less. That if we make good decisions with exercise, with food, with rest, with water consumption, that making those decisions can allow us to put our bodies in a position where we face less sickness and our immunities are stronger. Certainly we can't eliminate all of the struggles we may have, but we know that a church that is healthy ought to keep an eye out to protect its health and its unity. In fact, one of the statements I've been making to you over and over as we begin this series that in a day and time when every other organization is fighting for our attention, when there are sects and movements and agendas, it's important for the church to be the church. And one of the telltale signs of a church that is healthy is this idea of unity. The opposite of unity is divisiveness. Now, I don't have to tell you that perhaps never before in my life do I remember a time where we deal with divisiveness. I, I literally, no research in this, I just decided to back up about two years and just make a list of every issue that came to my mind that people are divided over. It's just a little short list. Let me show it to you. If I just go back two years, pro-Trump, pro-Biden, pro-conservative, anti-Trump, pro-liberal but anti-Biden, progressive, traditional liberals, Conservatives, defund the police, refund the police, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-abortion, LGBTQ plus sign supportive, or a biblical view of gender, sex, and sexuality, pro-quarantine and pro-shutdown, anti-lockdown, pro-mask all the time, 
pro-mask some of the time. Anti-mask, pro-vaccine and pro-mandate, pro-vaccine but anti-mandate, anti-vaccine and anti-mandate, and next week pro-bangles and anti-rams, or pro-rams and anti-bangles. I mean, I mean, literally, while we might have a laugh, th- th- think about how divided people are. And it discourages all of us, but it should never surprise us. The world has nothing upon which to be unified about. Many of these divides, these chasms cannot be bridged because the foundation of the divide comes from a worldview, from a system of values. I, 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 will, I will never be pro-abortion. I can never be pro-choice if I believe that every child is precious in the eyes of God from the moment of conception. Just not going to happen. There's no movement. There's no negotiation. It will not happen. And those on the other side of that debate or any debate up here have just as deep convictions. They may be misguided in my view and in my opinion, but the convictions do run deep. This is why I never encourage church members to argue with anybody on social media about things that are ultimately symptoms of a deeper issue, which is my values are determined by my Savior, not my opinion, not my wisdom, but my Savior. And what he says is not negotiable. And he has made himself extraordinarily clear in the beautiful, inerrant, inspired word he gave us. And we see this over and over and over again. And we go, could there be some place where a group of people could truly be unified? And that is exactly why Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, the greatest evidence of the gospel is that a group of people within a church experience unity. Because unity is this fascinating miracle where people are so devoted to one Lord and one mission and one word, they're able to put differences aside and be unified, lock in step. I mean, think about this for just a moment before we read the text. Jesus, in John 17, is praying for his followers before his death. Listen to what he says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. Jesus prayed for you the night of his arrest. He says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. That is an earth-shaking statement. Jesus says, Lord, give the church unity So when people see the church, they see such commonality, such shared values, such oneness of heart that they cannot deny a Savior must live in them all. That unity is seen when the church is born. The birth of the church is in the book of Acts. And over and over again, there are references to the unity. It doesn't mean the first church was perfect. All you have to do is read the book of Acts and see they made many mistakes. But you see things that Luke records in the book of Acts like chapter 1, verse 14. All these with one accord. Chapter 4, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. Chapter 15, verse 25. It has seemed good to us having come to one 
accord. So there's this idea that gospel equals unity. And unity evidences gospel. Which means the first thing to go out the door of any church that loses its unity is gospel. And you think about it. Tell me of a church that's fighting, that's divided, that's quarreling. I'll show you a church that's not reaching people. I've watched them die all around me throughout my entire life. And if we, Church the Mill, if we believe that we're somehow immune to that, then we're on our way to being the next church that divides itself and that struggles with division. This is why Paul begins to call for unity. Let me show you what I mean this morning, beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. Paul reflects, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. When we begin to see Paul appeal for unity, it unfolds in four ways. First, he calls for their unity. He he does not begin with what's wrong. He begins by saying, this is a command I'm giving you as an apostle. And the interesting thing is, his language is pretty hard. Look what it says in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, not by my name, not by apostolic authority, but by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most commentators have pointed out that Paul is tying their possession to their unity. This is what he's saying. You don't belong to yourself. You, 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 you belong to Christ now. And therefore, if you belong to Christ and I belong to Christ and I see divisions among you, I'm appealing to you not in my name and not in your name. I'm appealing to you in the name of the one who bled, died, and bought your freedom. In his name, I appeal to you. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, we could spend the whole morning in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Now, what were the conflicts in Corinth? Well, they were pretty serious ones. We're going to see them over the next few months. There were factions over leaders. There was incest, lawsuits, even more sexual immorality. Confusion and abuse around spiritual gifts. That's just an overview of what this church was infected by. Now, just a little grace here. You could think, whew, this is going to be interesting. What a terrible church. Well, why would God give Paul the words he gave? Was it because he wanted to give up? Was it because he walked away? No, because he loved his church. Whenever you study the underbelly of a church, Whenever you roll up your sleeves and see what can be wrong with the church, always remember something. 
you do so, you do so with honesty, but you do so recognizing we're talking about another man's wife. I, I, I have recognized flaws in other people, but if we're going to be Christ-like about it, even if we speak of another person's flaws, that's somebody's baby. That's somebody's wife. That's somebody's husband. I don't know about you, but it's easier for me to be sinfully critical of people from far off when they're close to me and I love them. I might be frustrated with them and I might be heartbroken over their actions, but I find myself hurting and maybe offering constructive criticism. I don't find myself tearing them down the way it's easily able to roll off my tongue to tear down someone I don't really know or I don't really care about. The church is another man's wife. It's the bride of Jesus. Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. And so as we study the blind spots, as we study the dark days, as we study the disobedience of the church in Corinth, you and I need to do well to remember we don't study just to throw rocks at this ancient group of people who've long since died. We study with fear and reverence to say, how can we make sure that as much as it depends on us, our church does not go down this path, and if it ever does, we know how to counter it, and if we ever see another church or another individual struggling, we know how to bring grace and truth to that. These were the factions. And within verse 10, notice what Paul says. I'll draw you back to the text. He says that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united. Now, that word united is a flexible, uh, usable Greek word. It, it actually drops itself in a lot of different sentences. It, it can be used to discuss all the parts of an instrument working together. Did you ever join the band in middle school and lose your mouthpiece or lose a drumstick or lose the reed if you were in the woodwind section? You know, or, 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 or maybe even forget your instrument, not sure where you put it. That sort of happened to me, and it was a trombone. That may describe to you my level of attention to detail as a 12-year-old. How do you lose a trombone, you know? But I did for a few days, and I was able to locate it after a few difficult hallway conversations with some of my friends, but I found it. But an instrument that is perfectly tuned by default has to have all of the parts of the instrument working in unison. It's also a word that can be used of setting a bone that's broken so that it heals and mends correctly. It's also a word that was used in the mending of a fishnet. I'm told that in the ancient world, when fishnets were mended, if you knew what you were doing and you looked at a net that had been mended, you could not tell where the tear was because of the skill of the fisherman who mended his nets. In fact, we know that at times Jesus would encounter people mending their nets. doesn't matter how hard you work as a fisherman if there is a hole in your net. And then another way that the word is used is a ship preparing for voyage, voyage, being fully outfitted, having everything it needed. So, so think about the sum total of all this meaning packed into this word. And Paul says, the way these things are in unison is the way I want you to be in unison together as believers spiritually. 
I don't want there to be any divisions among you. Now, where does that start? Okay, how do you destroy a division? We, we're, we'd like to see that. We wouldn't like to see us divided. And of course, remember, we're not talking about uniformity. We're talking about unity. There is a fundamental difference between uniformity and unity. Uniformity can be forced. You can force all the men at boot camp to wear the same outfit and be on the same schedule and eat in the same mess hall and do the same calisthenics and go through the same drills. That's uniformity. This is what the military does, and it's important, and it has value. It's so important that the clothes they wear when building uniformity are called uniforms. So uniformity is outwardly forcing people to comply to a picture, to a process, to a plan. There's a place for that. But unity is not outwardly forcing. Unity is inwardly joining other people in a mission. It means hundreds of different personalities and strengths and weaknesses ethnicities, demographics. It means all of you having your own set of passions and likes and wants and desires coming together and saying, in my body of believers, I am an individual. I have been given a personality. I am unique. There's only one of me. There's only one of you. Of all the people that exist in the world, they've never found two people, even identical twins, that have the same fingerprint. We're all different, and God shows off his glory in making us all unique unto ourselves. But the church is a group of people so changed from the inside that our differences do not divide us because what we have in common in Christ is greater than any difference we may experience in our body, in our personality, in our experiences that form who we are. And where does that come from? Where is the seat of who you are? Well, it's your mind. It's how you think about things. You come up against a situation, immediately you can begin to make decisions. Am I going to be a part of the solution here or am I going to create more division? Am I going to take sides in this situation or am I going to promote unity? Which is exactly why verse 10 ends this way. Look at the text. The text says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. Now watch what he says. In the same room... No, there's an 11 o'clock service coming in a few minutes. With the same worship style? No. Same kind of clothes? No. Some of you grew up in that era. Everybody had a coat and town when he went to church. No. The same mind and the same judgment. Now, mind and judgment are close to being synonyms. Think about it this way. He's not talking about sinful judgment. He's not saying, well, everybody get together and just, at the world. We're just going to judge them all. Everybody's going to hell but us. It's us four and no more. That's not what he's saying. I use my judgment to decide how I'm going to speak. I use my judgment to decide how I'm going to react to what I may feel. I have no control over what my emotions may cause me to want to do. But I have control over what I do in response to my emotions. I've never learned how not to feel something. We feel what we feel. You might feel joy. You might feel sorrow. You may feel peace. You may feel anger. You may feel commitment. You may feel lust. You may feel 
pride. You may feel a low sense of self-worth. You may feel arrogant. You may feel humble. I don't know how any preacher could tell you how to dictate to the emotional seat of yourself how you control what you feel. The Scripture speaks to what you do with what you feel. And how you view your feelings determine how you choose to act, which is why Paul says the root of unity is not a church forcing people into legalistic uh, conformity. The root of unity is every one of you deciding, Lord, help me think like you think. Help me see her like you see her. Lord, give me your spirit that gives me revelation and gives me illumination of your word. Give me insight. Help me perceive. Don't let me jump to conclusions. Don't let me keep in my heart a seed of bitterness. Let me have the mind that is in you in me. And by the way, this keeps coming up over and over. A little bit later in the book of 1 Corinthians, the scripture says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, how do you have the mind of Christ? Is, God, is Paul saying that you are as smart as God? Well, no, we know that's not true. God's, in fact, smart's not even something you can use with God. Smart for you and me is how much knowledge do you have compared to somebody else? God is the source of all knowledge. So so, so there is no gauge at which we could compare ourselves to him cognitively. He's saying that upon salvation, the Spirit of God comes to live in you. We love the Holy Spirit. We love him. He comes to live in us, and he renews our mind. Anybody ever memorize Romans 12, verses 1 and 2? By the renewing of your mind, you are able to discern the will of God. So if you store Jesus, if you say, yeah, Jesus saved me, I got baptized, I did check a card, I did raise my hand, I'm good. And then you look forward to Jesus in heaven. But Christ is not changing you now. I'm afraid you've gutted the gospel of its meaning. Because to know Christ is to know his control of your mind. I can't speak for you, but I can because I'm human. I'll speak for me. I do my worst thinking. I do my stinking thinking when I don't pour my thoughts through the mind of Christ. When I don't ask, Lord, what is your will in this situation? Now, allow me to be very general, but I think this is accurate. Give me a hundred or a hundred thousand Christians, doesn't matter, who genuinely seek the mind of Christ as informed by his word, I'll show you a group of people who have everything they need to be Unified, And remember how Paul talks about this in Philippians 2 when he talks about Christ? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now, how are you and I going to have the same mind? There's some of you that have minds I envy. I wish I was as smart as you. There's others of you, well, not so much. How are we going to have the same mind? What is he talking about? He's not talking about your brain replacing my brain or my brain replacing your brain or you and your cognitive ability being someone else's. He's saying the way you think, the way you react, what drives you, what motivates you, have the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Three verses later, verse 5, Philippians 2, have this mind among yourself, which is yours where? In Christ Jesus. 
So it's a good thing for a man in this room to pray this prayer this week. Lord, help me to think about my life and the lives of my family the way you would have me think about them. Help me to view things the way you would have me view them. And this call for unity is followed by Paul calling out their loyalty. So we see the first hint of the problem. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Now, we don't know who Chloe is, but apparently the church was associated or meeting in her home. Remember, the first century church didn't have buildings like you and I, and they met in people's homes, and often they were kind of known as, this is the congregation from Chloe's home. It could have been Chloe's servants. It may have been Chloe's uh, children. It, it, it may have been someone associated. We don't even have testimony that Chloe was a Christian. It could have been that Chloe was a believer and was very much a part of the church. It could have been that a few servants who were from Chloe's house had told Paul, hey, in the church, people are drawing lines and they're drawing lines around loyalty to leaders. My, 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 it's not so applicable today. Look what he says. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And so Paul wants to clarify. What kind of quarreling? Look at verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul. And then somebody else says, well, I follow Apollos. And then somebody else says, well, I follow Caiaphas which is Peter, another word for Peter. We, you want to say Cephas, but in the original language, it's, it's pronounced Caiaphas with a, with a K, Caiaphas. Or I follow Christ. So you have these parties beginning to develop. People were aligning themselves under a leader, and by default, they were doing two things. They were elevating that leader, and they were de-elevating other people's leaders. So they were beginning to divide over who was your spiritual leader, the phenomena of the celebrity pastor. I can only grow under him, or I only go to church if he's teaching or if she's leading. I, I have to have my word from him or from her. Now, what causes that? Well, human beings are naturally drawn to charismatic personalities, and the interesting thing about it is there's a difference between loving your leader and being so loyal to your leader you criticize others. If you love your pastor, if you love your small group leader, if you love the man or the woman who's discipling you, if God has placed a spiritual leader in your life and you love this person, you can love them fully. You can be biblically and righteously loyal to them. You can care for them. You can support them. You can pray for them. But none of those things causes you to be critical of other leaders or to resent another Christian flourishing under someone else's teaching. You know, as a pastor, one of the things I love when I'm around people who are not a part of our church is to hear them brag on their pastor. I love it when people brag on their small group. Or I'll strike up a conversation with a believer somewhere who goes to a church in a different state, and they'll say, oh, I love our pastor's series in this. Or have you met or heard of my pastor? Or my small group is studying this book. It brings me great joy that they've never heard of us, they don't need to hear of us, and that they're being fed spiritually under a person who is serving them. So you can love your leader, but there's no need to compare your leader to someone else. This was happening. And people were saying, well, hey, I'm in the Paul party. We got a better slice of the pie than the Apollos party. We got a fuller dose of the Spirit. We got more anointing than you. 
In fact, we know that's indicated because after he calls out their loyalty, Paul reminds them of reality. Here's the reality. Look at verse 13. It's rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? And that word actually means the literal division. In other words, did God say, I'm going to give this church a little Jesus, I'm going to give that church a little Jesus, and this preacher a little Jesus, so much so that all of them never get the full dose of the Savior? Is Christ divided? It's a ludicrous statement. Paul is pointing out the reality through a rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? And of course, the way you align yourself under a spiritual leader, especially in the first century, is you go, well, who baptized you? Whose baptism are you following? Remember when John the Baptist followers recognized that people were going after Jesus and they saw this as a threat? And John said, no, 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 it's not a threat. He's the one I came to prophesy about. And this is why verse 13 goes on to say these words. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Why does Paul use himself? Because he's trying to show it's not about Apollos or Cephas. It's about the Lord, was I crucified for you? The answer, of course, is no, Christ was. And then he says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? When we baptize somebody, do we baptize them in the name of a leader? I thank God, Paul says, I didn't baptize, or I baptized none of you except Christmas and Gaius. Now, Paul's not anti-baptism. He's pro-baptism. But what he's saying is, is that I'm glad that during my public ministry, I wasn't the one doing a lot of the baptizing because that seems to be the thing you're using to divide. You're telling people you're only loyal to the leader who baptized you. The problem with that is, is that only one human being can baptize you, unless, of course, you're baptized multiple times. But the Scripture indicates that baptism represents salvation. It's why when someone is saved and baptized, every time they recommit themselves to the Lord, we don't encourage a second or a third or a fourth baptism. In fact, we believe your baptism should be in order of the Scripture. The Scripture teaches that people are lost. They become saved in their faith with Christ. They then show their faith through baptism. And if anything, while much of the New Testament elevates the importance of baptism, Paul shows that baptism is not the essence of the ministry, but it is the proclamation of the gospel. This is important because baptism does not save you. Why does not baptism save you? Because you can do it. You can be baptized. A minister can lower you in the water and bring you out. If we equate water baptism with salvation, we've suddenly said that the works of human beings have something to do with us being saved. That's not what the Scripture teaches. Christ saves us, not water and not baptism. And this is why Paul says, let me remind you what the reality is. You're dividing yourself over things that really don't matter. Friend, haven't we heard of churches doing that? Churches fighting over worship style? Churches fighting over which committee gets to pick the color of the carpet? Or which side of the sanctuary the American flag and the Christian flag is supposed to be on during vacation Bible school? I mean, I've heard churches fight over so many things that are not eternal. And what I find is that when you lovingly allow them to share, they're not using the mind of Christ. They're not seeking unity. They've drawn lines in the sand, and almost all of them come to the God of personal preference. 
And so what we have to do is we have to recognize reality, which leads, of course, to the last verse. Look what happens. Paul reflects a little bit. He says, so that none of you, verse 15, and say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So Paul is sort of belittling what they're making into a bigger deal theologically. He's saying, you guys are stuck on the wrong thing. But watch verse 17, because it's here where Paul restated his priority. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, Christian ministers do baptize. The Great Commission teaches us to go you therefore and make disciples. And notice that when we make disciples, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what the Great Commission says. And then we teach them all that Jesus commanded us. This is what the Great Commission says. So it is a good thing for Christian missionaries and Christian ministers and Christian churches to baptize and encourage baptism. But baptism is not the end goal. The end goal is salvation. Salvation does not come through water baptism. Salvation comes through the proclamation of the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, look what verse 17 says. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, by the way, Words that men use are almost always the reasons people have misguided loyalties. They hang on every word. Sadly, some of the greatest false teachers of our day who clothe themselves under the name of the gospel spend more time and more money printing books with their face on the cover than they do preaching the word of God. Their wisdom and their eloquence their ability to work a crowd or make these wisdom nugget statements on Twitter or Instagram lures people in to believing that they have an anointing on their life when the anointing on the preacher's life comes through preaching the anointed word of God. And so when he said, I, I preached the gospel, but I didn't do it with eloquent words of wisdom, and here's why. This is where I'll leave you. He says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, we're about to spend a whole lot of time on the cross of Christ on the next few weeks. But this is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. There is no philosophical argument to be made. I cannot win someone to righteous living simply by encouraging them to make a mental ascent. They actually have to bow, be broken, and recognize the sin in their life separated them from God. But God loved them so much that he came and lived the perfect life we were intended to live. Then the full wrath of God was poured out on the sinless Lamb of God so that the price of our sin could be paid once and for all. And upon his resurrection, the penalty of our sin, which is death, was defeated and swallowed up in victory. And that is the gospel. I can't dress it up. I'm not supposed to make it fancy. I'm not supposed to 
work hard to make you understand that it's something else, something deeper, deeper, something greater. There is nothing deeper or greater than Jesus dying for me. This is the gospel. And when we try to dress it up, we empty it of its power. If there is a sinner watching me preach right now online, if there is a sinner in this room who's never been saved, no eloquent words, no fancy PowerPoint outline, no ability to use humor and, and, and argument and rhetoric is going to save you. Nothing in this room can save you. No song can save you. Only Christ can save you. And the only way Christ saves a person is if they say, I believe in his death and his resurrection and that he is Lord. So I confess my broken state and I cast the lot of my fate on the mercy seat of God and I trust in him and him alone to save me, to forgive me, to guide me and one day to take me home. There is no other gospel. And that is the key to unity. I was sitting in a New Testament class in seminary and the professor said something I've shared with you before. He said, boys, <laughs> where there is no unity, there is no gospel. That's true in your life. It's true in mine. And how do we declare that gospel? Well, we do it a lot of different ways, but do you know what Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians? He said this about the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You received as you came in the elements of the ordinance of the Lord's table. I'd like for you to prepare to take it with me as our invitation today. If you are not a Christ follower, I invite you to watch the believers around you. We have no desire to exclude you. This table is open to any believer. We would just ask that you trust Christ and Christ alone first, in keeping with the integrity of the word. The scripture also says that we are to examine ourselves before we take the bread and the cup. And what a great word about unity. Is there anything in your life or any opinion you may have had or any hurt feeling that has affected your unity with your church family? I don't know of a more unifying thing that happens in the church of the Lord Jesus worldwide than the taking of the bread and the cup. When you study the history and the theology of the Lord's Supper, you find that across denominational lines, people have never given up on the power of a wafer and a small portion of juice or wine to represent the body and the blood of Jesus because it's given to us that way in Scripture. If you've examined your heart and you know that you are Christ follower, the Scripture says that you and I are to take reverently. The Bible teaches that on the night of Jesus' arrest, he said, I've longed to have this supper with you and they enjoyed the Passover meal in the upper room that was prepared the scripture says that 
He took bread and he broke it. And when he had blessed it, he said, take this and eat. For this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this is a cup representing the blood of the new covenant. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Church family, let's pray together. As you take a moment to bow, I'm reminded of verse 10. So gently and certainly with the heart of a shepherd, I ask you, do you have the mind of Christ? Are you thinking about your family as Christ thinks about them? When worry comes, are you remembering what Jesus said? Yesterday's gone, tomorrow has enough worries for itself. The Father that we have in heaven feeds the little bird. He dresses the field in lilies. Surely he can care for you. <laughs> Jesus didn't mince words. He said, do not worry. What about your human relationships? Did you come in this morning with some tension in your marriage or burden for a child or maybe work? We don't have the ability to control the minds of others. But if you know the Lord Jesus, then you have access to what Paul said, to have this mind that is in you, that is yours in Christ Jesus. And when you think about all the ways Christians can find to argue and bicker and disagree, would you be a woman of God that brings unity to the degree that you can, as much as it depends on you, in every relationship within this church? Would you be the man of God that says, our church is unified, we love our leaders, we believe in our vision and our direction, but we will not take them for granted. We will continue to work toward unity. And when divisiveness rears its head, we will go to it with firmness and grace. We will gently but firmly love people back into a place of unity. I believe, church family, that the best is yet to come in our church. I've been sensing for a while that we're on the verge of something special. The enemy knows this too, and if he has a shot at distracting us, he cannot change our king. He cannot dethrone the Lord. He cannot undo the cross, nor can he fill the tomb. But I have seen him divide many churches. Be on guard. Be unified and declare the death of Jesus and the hope of the resurrection as the basis of our unity. Father, as we prepare to leave this place this morning,
I pray we would do so with a great love of you and a great desire to bring unity. We pray this in Jesus' name.